Welcome to another episode of the Unveiling Grace podcast. I'm Lynn Wilder. And I'm Michael Wilder. And we're excited again to have Corey with us. So he's going to explain the whole knowledge of the universe. He's going to explain everything <laughs> about stars and planets, about having your own planet and so forth. So so this is a, we're just going to let him t- take the whole show today. Well, that's because today we are talking about using reason in faith. When I came upon this scripture as a former Mormon Christian who had based my faith on feelings and believed that the Holy Spirit spoke only through feelings, then I began to read things in the Bible like, Come, let us reason together as if we were invited to use our brain in faith. Things like test the spirits, things like question, right? Ask questions. This is Proverbs 21, 16. I love this verse. There are several different versions of it. One who wanders from the way of good sense, sometimes it says sound reason, will rest in the assembly of the dead. Whoa, someone who refuses to use their brain in faith is not going to end up saved. They're going to end up in the assembly of the dead. Now, we we talked in a previous episode with Corey, and um, this is Corey Miller with Rashio Christie, an apologetics organization. Rosh, um, Corey is former LDS, like us, now Christian, and um, we're going to talk about some of the reasons to use your brain and faith and why you should want to believe in God. This conversation will be geared specifically to people who are questioning their Mormon faith, but who are not sure quite how to figure out what's true. One of my arguments to those folks is in Mormonism, you used only emotion in faith to test truth. What if there was a faith where you could use both emotion and reason? What if there was a faith that was both subjective and objective? Wouldn't that be a bigger faith? And wouldn't that be something you'd want to investigate? Corey, welcome. Good to be here. Thank you for your guys' ministry and uh, opportunity for me to come on board and say a thing or two. So Corey is on college campuses and high school campuses helping Christian youth know what their faith is, how to have conversations about their faith, and how to apologize kind of for their faith, although I'm sure that's not how you use that word. Um, tell us tell us what you do, and then let's get into the content of some of what you do. Okay. So, Ratio Christi means the reason of Christ. It is Latin, and uh, we have a professor's ministry, a college student ministry, and a high school level ministry. And we focus intently on equipping students and professors with historical, philosophical, and scientific reasons for following Jesus. So, uh, we go to the universities because we think there is a leverage point there. As goes the university, so goes the culture. And as goes the U.S. university right now anyway, so goes the world. And so 
we want to see, um, you know, we want to we want to present the plausibility of uh, the Christian worldview and introduce people to an opportunity to relate to Jesus, um, and then reclaim the intellectual um, place at the table at the universities to talk about God, truth, and beauty, and things like that. So I'm trained as a philosopher and theologian in particular. And we're on about a hundred campuses. And um, I actually did a video one time for Corey's, which is up on their website, of being in a secular secular university that was somewhat hostily Christian, um, and how to negotiate that and navigate that. I really learned to be fine with who I was. Uh, even to be laughed at if people wanted to laugh at me. And God gave me many wonderful opportunities at the university. Um, I was invited to speak about the book Unveiling Grace one time in an interfaith uh, setting. And 12 of my atheist colleagues showed up. I just gave books free. And many of those colleagues read my book. And then one said to me, I was just blown away about how bold you are, especially on a university campus, right, to be giving reasons to believe in Jesus. Um, What are some of those reasons, Corey? Yeah, one thing I would say as a preface first is, you know, oftentimes we pit faith against reason where you know, as yes. Mark Green would say, that faith is believing what you know ain't true. Um, that's that's preposterous. Uh, biblical faith is both reasonable and fruitful. It's um, it's not barren and it's not blind. And you just look at this throughout history. First of all, the nature of faith itself in the Bible is a a ventured trust. Uh, we have faith in almost everything we believe, whether that's getting on an airplane without knowing for certain, uh, whether the uh, pilot's a, a trained pilot, whether the mechanics are going to get us there. We have faith in that. We have faith in the doctors. We have faith in most of what we learn throughout school. Almost every belief we have outside of math, logic, and introspective philosophy is a combination of faith plus reason, belief plus evidence. So there's that. And the Christian faith in particular, uh, our self-understanding is that we are not a faith tradition. We are a knowledge tradition. Knowledge mm. is central to the Christian experience. We go to Jesus for that. And he tells us in John seventeen three, here then is eternal life to know God. Knowledge is central. In the medieval times, we were the ones that kept education alive, faith seeking understanding. And you know, um, we were the ones who, as Christians, launched the universities. Yeah. Harvard, uh, here in the U.S., and Princeton, and Yale, and Columbia came from the models of Cambridge, Oxford, Bologna, Paris, uh, all started by Christians. And in the United States, a lot of people find this unbelievable. But for the first 250 years, since Harvard in 1636, all the way up until about 1880, almost every university in the country uh, was Protestant, Christ-centered. Um, the president was a member of the clergy and taught the capstone course on moral philosophy. So this idea that Christian faith is unreasonable is is fairly new on the field. And almost every major sub-discipline of science uh, was founded by by a Christian. And just, you know, off the top of my head, you think about Mendel in genetics. He's playing with his pea pods in 
the monastery and came up with genetic and genotype type and phenotype traits. Or you have uh, Louise Pasteur in bacteriology or Kepler in astronomy, Linnaeus in taxonomy, Newton in physics, Boyle in chemistry, Maxwell in electrodynamics. The list goes on and on and on. There is a reason why the universities were birthed in the Christian world and why the sciences were birthed in a Christian world. And that is because um, a world that begins with mind rather than matter is one that is almost predictable, one that you can expect uh, to have um, uh, these movements that ended up becoming the universities and so forth uh, from, a, from a Christian viewpoint. Um, we believe that God is mind. Um, he's more than that, but he is the fountainhead of rationality. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus was called the logos or the logic in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God and became flesh and dwelt among us. So that Greek word logos or logic, it is as true to say that God is love as it is to say that God is logic. The Latin term representing it is ratio or ratio for ratio Christi, reason. And so it's just a complete historical blunder to say that Christian faith is unreasonable or opposed to reason uh, when all of the major institutions were founded by Christians. And there's a story to tell how we lost the universities, but that stuff was never started by atheism. And so uh, I, I can say that. Should I should I pause there for a question or move on to what are some of the reasons? No, I, I'm curious about how that has been lost at the university. Hmm. So I was at Brigham Young for eight years. Hmm. And of course, I could talk Jesus in my courses. Then I ended up at a state university in Florida and like I said, almost hostily anti-Christian. And I was a little bit of surprised about that, right? Yeah. Um, so tell me about this movement. Who changed it, how it's changed, and where we are now? Yeah. So uh, if listeners want to see uh, an article I wrote on it, um, How We Lost the Universities is the title. Uh, you can just Google that, How We Lost the Universities. Corey Miller uh, wrote it for a Christian Research Journal. Uh, but the, the short of it is, and I've been now to every one of the colonial schools. Uh, I'm a university connoisseur, so I've been to all the ones that were pre-1776 and many after. And you can just see it on their buildings. This is not making stuff up. Their mottos are still there. They're still quoting the scriptures and so forth. Um, it, it was, it was very early on, within a decade almost, of the Pilgrims landing uh, the Mayflower, of them starting Harvard, and then they started Yale, and then Princeton, and then Columbia, on down the line, up until about 1880 to 1930, and that's where the battle over the universities took place. And um, what was happening were practical issues and also philosophical. For the practical ones, you know, most of the universities were um, parochial. They were denominational schools. They were what is called sectarian schools. So Congregationalist, Harvard, Presbyterian, Princeton, Brown was Baptist and so forth. Well, as the population was growing, um, more Presbyterians were moving into Baptist areas and Congregationalist and Methodist and so forth. And so the university had a need to, um, you know, serve a broader community for one. Um, but then they also started having practical needs for the universities, not just to train 
ministers and missionaries, which, you know, in the 17th century uh, or 18th century, most of Harvard grads went on to be pastors or missionaries and Hebrew was required, but they needed to start having engineering and business and, and other things like that. And so practical skills. Likewise, uh, in the U.S., we had no graduate programs. Uh, I think Johns Hopkins might have been the first one, but they had graduate programs over in Germany and uh, in England. But a lot of our, our best and brightest minds would go over to Germany. And at the time, biblical criticism was happening and Darwinism was happening. And um, many of our people got taken by the philosophical assumptions behind some of the science or the philosophical assumptions behind some of the history. And this is important because um, in the medievals, they, they would say that theology is the queen of the sciences and philosophy, it's handmade. And so if you can imagine this, you have a, a hub uh, of a wheel with spokes uh, representing biology and mathematics and paleontology and psychology and English and so forth. Well, what's gluing all that together is the pH. So for every PhD, there is a doctor of philosophy, and theology was the queen. Mm. Now, after the Enlightenment period, it's now atheology or atheism, and that got ripped out. Uh, so every department started changing their names from psychology, which is the study of the soul, to the Department of Psychological Sciences, Mm. Or from politics, which is always part of ethics for 2,500 years, to political science, because the scientific revolution was taking place and everything was about science and so much the worse for philosophy or religion or anything that wasn't sense perceptible that you couldn't taste or touch or smell or hear or feel. And so um, that, that big kind of criticism was lopping off miracles, lopping off God's existence, uh, tearing apart the, uh, the Bible and so forth. And many of those graduates would then come back with master's degrees now, upper, gra upper graduate degrees, and they would become the top professors and then the presidents for these universities. And so one by one, by between 1880 and 1930 was the battle. By 1930, the battle was over, and uh, the conservatives were largely out. Methodological naturalists and metaphysical naturalists, many of them atheists, had stepped in and liberals took over um, the universities and Christians had to restart new universities, Biola University, Moody Bible, you know, things like that. They had, to, they had to start and launch new universities. That's happened again. It's happening right now over the last 30 years. But the difference now is cultural Marxism and postmodernism. So instead of scientific naturalism, which is dominant in the sciences, it's now from the humanities, uh, postmodernism and uh, critical theory or cultural Marxism. And uh, so there's a battle going on, a revolution that's happening right now. But that's how it happened. We started the universities. Christians were thinkers. Um, I think 100 years ago, we abdicated our role and responsibility in high culture. D.L. Moody said, don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. In other words, the Titanic's going down, just get souls off. And we kept focusing on harvest crusade after harvest crusade after harvest crusade without sowing seed. And we neglected the life of the mind. We retained the heart and the hands of Christ, but largely excommunicated the head of Christ. And so that's kind of in a nutshell how that stuff was, was able to take place and, and now has taken place. Woo! So what are you trying to do at the universities? Hmm. 
So, yeah, and I've got a book that I'm, I'm writing right now on From Campus to Culture, an Alternative Vision for the Future, how we need to reclaim um, those institutions because mm-hmm. we send uh, parents and grandparents literally pay for the apostasy of their own children. We send them to these secular baptismal fonts and wonder why the Bible said, train them up in the way they should go after 18 years. And when they get older, they get conscripted to work for the other side. (laughs) That's, you know, um, that proverb that they won't depart from it was a proverb. It's a generality. Well, we're not training them good enough. Our churches are more interested in skinny jeans and fog machines than in learning the Bible and learning to defend the faith. And we're not, um, we've not read the culture properly. We still think we can talk about the Bible assumptions, about God as an assumption, about Jesus as, as an assumption, about traditional Christian ethics as an assumption. That stuff has gone a generation ago. We're in, Mar- we're in Acts 17 in this culture. We're in Mars Hill. Um, and we need to be able to use apologetics for our efforts in evangelism and know why we believe what we believe and be able to compare that to these alternative um, narratives and stories that are competitive with Christianity because you get there and it is really sad. The ratio of left to right, liberal to conservative used to be in the nineties, 2.3 to one. Uh, It's now 12 to one for those who are um, 60 years and older getting ready to retire. It's 23 to one for all of those under age 40 for the next 30 years. And in New England, it's 27 to one. And if Christian parents think, oh my goodness, Harold, we better send Johnny to at least take a religion class at Purdue University. No, that's the worst. That's 70, <laughs> seven zero to one. Um, you best just hope that they remember what they were taught in Sunday school because what they're going to get at the religion department is going to be the absolute worst. So our churches need to do a much better job of representing the 2,000-year tradition, which is a knowledge tradition. It is not a faith tradition. Faith is simply trust. That's what the Greek word means. Uh, the Hebrew word, emunah, the a Latin word, fides, fidelity, means the same thing. It's a ventured trust. It's, it's not blind. It's trust in a trustworthy object. Um, it's, it's reasonable. And that's why the sciences, that's why the universities all started from us. And so we need to get the pastors on board with this and start following Jesus and not his invitation, but the command to love God with your mind and follow uh, Peter in his dictum, which is not an invitation, but a command to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that's in you and do it with gentleness and respect. And there we have the head, the hand and the hearts, the heart of Christ together. We need to be integrated Christians and loving God with head, hand and hearts. As we speak in churches across the United States, and we've been in England as well, um, I personally believe that the churches that are growing are the ones that are preaching the word. I think a lot of people are done with the fluff, um, particularly in the last couple of years after COVID, right? People are looking for real answers and they're looking for real perimeters. So, if you had a ranch in Idaho and you had cattle and you put them into a new field, the first thing they do, I'm not a cattle rancher, but I've been told this, is they they find where the perimeter is. They rub against the fence so they know just how far they can go. 
And I honestly believe that humans want to know. They want to know what's good, what's bad, what's truth, what's not, what I should do, how my marriage might turn out better if I do this or that. And all of those kind of answers come from God and they're in the Bible. And I think uh, pastors that aren't afraid to preach the Bible literally have hungry people that are coming to them. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, um, you know, after COVID, yeah, a lot of the churches shut down. Some churches stayed up. Uh, I ended up going to a Calvary Chapel because the one thing about a Calvary Chapel, it tends to be sometimes anti-seminary, sometimes anti-intellectual, but they always preach from the Bible and every pastor you can count on, they have to have a goatee, be a former pot smoker, and have a Harley Davidson. <laughs> so oh, these guys preach. You have, to add, you have to add to that, they may have to have tattoos. And okay? tattoos, that's right. And, and be in jail. They have to be in jail, okay? Yeah, been uh, in jail. Then you're going to be in a Calvary path. Prison no. ministry. Yeah. It's, well, no, and they're so real people. They're real they people. Are. That's, that's, that's right. They're very genuine, but they preach the Bible. I would I would like it if they would get more engaged in apologetics because to do evangelism in a skeptical culture, sure. uh, we follow Paul's example in, in Mars Hill. And so a lot of people don't believe the Bible is the word of God. So that's where apologetics comes in to show why it's more reasonable than not to take it as historic reliable in the word of God. But... Yeah, you're absolutely right. They pastors need to be taking as their central prerogative the word of God and giving expository sermons. We, we're sick of seeing you know fluff at these churches. I would rather stay out in the parking lot and memorize scripture than than go in there yeah. and waste my time. That's what a lot of people think. So uh, w- our churches are really hurting. The the students that they're putting out are really hurting. They go off to the universities and there's a double edged sword. One is frat row and parties on Friday night. Well, they haven't done that, but why not? Their flesh wants to. Everybody's doing it. And the only reason I don't is because my convictions. But my convictions have been shot full of holes because all the smart people with PhDs or doctorates in philosophy, even though they've never taken a philosophy class, uh, are they're shooting holes in the bucket. And now I don't have any reason not to go to the parties on Friday night. And so it's a double whammy. And so not only do we need to start teaching the Bible again, how novel is that in our churches, but we need to be equipping our people now. If we're going to send them out into the marketplace, we need to equip them with reasons. And there are plenty of reasons to believe that God exists, that it is the Christian God, that the Bible is the word of God, um, and the life after death is coming, and you got to play. You're either putting all your money on red or black in Vegas. Everyone has to play. You know, one of the phone calls we often get in ministry is from Christian parents who believe they raised their kids Christian. They sent them off to a secular college. And if they don't get into the drinking that a lot of Christian kids do, right, and the partying, they'll find that only the Mormons are the ones not doing those kind of things. <laughs> and then they sometimes join the Mormon church, right? Because that's where somebody's holding these parameters, yeah. these boundaries for uh, moral things that are clear in the Bible. Yeah. And then because they don't know the Bible very well, right? They can't discern the doctrinal differences. Mm-hmm. Lots of things to talk about. 
Yes. And I could, you know, we could talk here on the podcast. I don't know how much time we have exactly, but we could talk about the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence, the design, the moral argument. But instead of that, uh, we now starting uh, next week, we now have a product orientation to our ministry. We have over 35 booklets now has Christianity opposed science almost all by PhDs, Signature in the Cell by um, Stephen Myers of Discovery Institute, or Ooh. his newest one, The God Hypothesis, 700 pages brought down to 25, mm. or Scientism by J.P. Moreland. We have everything from uh, God's existence, the existence of truth, reliability of the Bible, the problem of evil and suffering, to the new stuff about uh, race, class, sex, gender, ethnicity, uh, all of that as well. All of the stuff, most of them are written by PhDs, 9,000 words, uh, written at the 11th grade reading level, so perfect for churches, for youth groups, for education, for small groups. Um, they're free for online download, or you can order them at just above uh, the cost for us to print them. Uh, there's 35 right now. They're all being translated into Spanish as well, and they'll all be in audio eventually. That's phase one. Phase two is we're going to get up to 50 of these. And so we've got resources Rashio Christie Press. Just Google Rashio Christie Press or go to rashiochristie.org and find it on there. But uh, all of these are free for download, or you can order them starting on Monday uh, for the price of the booklets. Wow. So we're in our last minute or two. What we're going to do in the next session with Corey is we're going to talk, um, we're going to think specifically people who have had questions in Mormonism, people who have left Mormonism, people who have gone to atheism and agnosticism. Corey and I wrote a book together, four of us actually, a few years back called Leaving Mormonism, Why Four Scholars Change Their Minds. The last chapter in that book is my favorite. And there are many things in that last chapter that we're going to talk about in the next episode. Why, if you leave Mormonism, decide there is no God, why you might give that a second thought. The very first person that read my book, Unveiling Grace, was someone who left Mormonism, was atheist for 20 years, read the book and went, hey, if there's a God that can do the things you describe in that book, I'd be willing to give him a try. They just don't know, and we need to know how to tell them. Mm. Wow, this, this is great. This is great. Yeah. You know, it's just uh, the whole concept. I remember when you were talking um, not that long ago, one of the LDS prophets, um, Hinckley, I do believe, said, do not study yourself out of the LDS church. So, but anyway, it, well, you can study yourself out of the LDS church. You just can't study yourself out of Christianity, okay? Yeah. Because the more you study, the more it proves right. And that's Amen. the beauty of the Bible. So. Amen. Thank you for the discussion, man. Grace and peace to you. Until next time. Okay, and may God bless. <laughs>